0: there is a huge and growing appetite, particularly amongst younger people, not to spend their lives doing something that they don't believe in, in order to spend a chunk of their lives giving away money that they earn, not believing in what they were doing.
1: Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to encourage you to be more philanthropic, to act more sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Please subscribe to the show. It makes a huge difference to us. It really does. Today, it's a great pleasure to have on board Stefan Chambers, who is the director, the inaugural director of the Marshall Institute at the London School of Economics, my alma mater. And it's great to be on campus. It's great to be here at the building of the Marshall Institute. And Stefan, a heartfelt welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here.
1: And it's great to see you again. I suppose we could start by finding out a little bit about the Marshall Institute. What is it? How long has it been around? Yeah. What's it aiming to do? And, and one of the things that, uh, that, I, that I remember you mentioned to me some time ago is that you're looking at private action for public benefit, yeah. which I thought was really interesting.
0: Universities are places where people think very hard about hard problems. And the problem of how to make our world sustainable, how to um, allow humans to flourish, how to cultivate altruism, how to uh, support people whatever the circumstances into which they're born. These are really hard problems and problems of poverty or environmental sustainability or corporate purpose are not problems because we don't have enough money. Mm They're problems because we misallocate resources and we don't understand the real effect of incentives on human behaviour and because we don't price bad things properly and we don't reward good things properly. So I've spent my entire working life trying to figure out how we might nudge the world into a slightly more sustainable place, mm-hmm. partly through doing research into some of these hard questions, and partly through trying to tilt the way we teach people who go on to positions of importance in money and management and health and government um, and professional services, to think in a more complete way about how the world is and how it might be better.
1: hmm And is the Marshall Institute, is it about research, is it about teaching, is it about convening, a little bit of everything?
0: The Marshall Institute is about three things. It's about research into some of these hard questions about what um, altruism might mean, what private action for public benefit might mean, how we mobilize philanthropic and investment capital for public purpose. Uh, It's about teaching. The LSE is one of the great universities in the world, well known throughout the world mm-hmm. for teaching people how to think about hard problems um, and we try to provide a place for people to meet and talk in a safe environment who wouldn't otherwise meet and talk Right, investors, philanthropists, foundations executives government officials, policy makers and advisors around the table talking about things that they know about, things that they want to know about, things that they think um, are important social challenges and how we can create new collaborations and new conversations. Once upon a time, the LSE and our founders, Paul Marshall and Tom hughes Hallett, had a notion that a serious university should take seriously these two things, mm-hmm. on the one hand, philanthropy a big asset class, at least a trillion dollars of global assets, poorly researched, poorly understood, and this rapidly growing movement of social entrepreneurship, which we define very simply as the intentional creation of organizations whose purpose is social as well as commercial. Mm And they wanted to set up a centre to uh, think hard about these things, and they created the Marshall Institute, which I run. And since we started it, what we've done is we've brought these two categories of capital together, philanthropic capital and investment capital. If it's being deployed for public benefit, it counts under this frame. It is pro-social or altruistic capital. We're agnostic about whether the return for that should be a mixture of social and commercial or whether it should be entirely social. What we're not agnostic about is it needs to be intentionally for public benefit. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: There is a huge and growing appetite, particularly amongst younger people, not to spend their lives doing something that they don't believe in, in order to spend a chunk of their lives giving away money that they earn, not believing in what they were doing everybody wants to live in a world in which they don't have to hold their nose over the work that they do everybody wants to live in a world that is morally defensible or or environmentally sustainable and we have to get to a point where our work and our business, and our markets, and our financial institutions, and our policy institutions reflect that normal, entirely widespread human instinct to be just, Mm -hmm. and to be collaborative, and to be sustainable.
1: How did you end up here? What drove you to the LSE and the Marshall Institute?
0: I spent my early career in the private sector, and I moved From that to Oxford's then-just-started business school. Right. And uh, I was responsible for all things entrepreneurial at that business school, particularly um, uh, venture capital and the whole startup system. And I was trying to reconcile my view that Markets were important and competition was important and money was important, with my view that um, we needed to inhabit a juster world. And, and exactly at that moment, completely by a coincidence, I met the newly appointed president of the Skoll Foundation, right. whom Jeff Skoll had just hired to run his foundation. And Jeff Skoll had, uh, was a co founder of eBay. Um, When eBay went public, he found himself in a position of having a significant foundation and trying to decide how to deploy the resources of that foundation. His then president, Sally Osberg, and I said, well, wouldn't it be interesting if we took social entrepreneurship and we put it in the mainstream of establishment thinking? Mm -hmm. And we put some research around it, and we... Um, used one of the world's most famous academic platforms, Oxford University to accelerate the recognition that social entrepreneurship was important and Jeff Skoll agreed to fund this he set up Oxford's Centre for Social Entrepreneurship at the Saïd Business School um, and uh, uh, we took social entrepreneurship from a emergent peripheral phenomenon to something that every corporation, every government and every entrepreneur in the world now recognizes as a priority Um, and we did that by celebrating and supporting the work of social entrepreneurs who do hard, lonely important work um, uh, all over the world we gave them a place to share their Ideas and share their experiences. We put um, academic resources behind that project. Um, and we created generation after generation of students who graduated from Oxford's Business School and took this principle back out into the world mm-hmm. in their investments, in their corporate behaviors, uh, in their startups. And this had a very profound effect on me and my life. Um, uh, I'd go so far as to say it changed my life. Um, And I'd go so far as to say that I was genuinely inspired by Jeff Skoll, who uh, took a set of Silicon Valley principles um, and applied them to famously he set up participant media to make movies. Um, And he made those movies um, around questions of social justice and changed, in doing so, the nature of the conversation. Um, Having spent 20 years or so um, at Oxford, um, I was completely fascinated by this idea that the LSE should um, take, as it were, a second generation Mm -hmm. um, idea... Um, and I couldn't resist when offered the chance to come to the Marshall Institute and to come to LSE. I simply couldn't resist the chance of doing something different having done what I'd done at Oxford.
1: And it didn't exist at the time? It didn't exist,
0: it didn't exist, So, so we built it and we spent you know we spent a year scratching our heads trying to figure out what would be most powerful and most useful and one of the things we realized was that the people who run the world, give or take, have all been schooled in the same tradition. Mm-hmm. And that tradition is the tradition of, let's call it shareholder primacy and the MBA orthodoxy. Um, that the real purpose of business is to reward shareholders for putting their capital at risk. And everybody seems to have realized that that story is incomplete at best, and leading to things that we then have to repair using philanthropic capital and other means. So what would the world look like if it trained people who go on to start, fund, run, and advise the world's corporations, if we trained them in a different mode, mm-hmm. if we trained them sensitive to all the contexts in which business operates, the social context, the cultural context, the environmental context, the regulatory context, and so on. So we thought, well, let's build something that is the antidote to the MBA.
1: The antidote to the MBA. Let's
0: see what the (laughs) antidote to the MBA might look like. And the LSE was uniquely Mm -hmm. poised to be able to do this since we don't have a business school here. We have a department of management. So we have the expertise, but we're not captured by the business model. So we set ourselves the challenge. What would it look like to take those elements of an MBA that we think are necessary and important Mm -hmm. um, and built around it a structure that allowed people to innovate using market-like mechanisms for public benefit? So we built a master's degree and... Um, we held our breath, and um, uh, we were immediately oversubscribed.
1: What's the, um, what is the master's? Uh, what's the name of the it's degree? It's
0: the Executive Master's in Social Business and Entrepreneurship okay. here at the London School of Economics. Um, we launched it two years ago. We projected that we would have about 20 students in the first year, mm-hmm. um, and we had 30 the right. following year we projected 25 and we had 40 um, and uh, it seems that there is a significant set of people who looked at doing a conventional MBA but didn't want to and when this appeared it spoke to a need that they have to combine these two logics, a social logic and a market logic right. uh, and we're very happy about that.
1: What are the challenges? What's um, what's the landscape look like to you when you come in in the morning here?
0: Well, the biggest challenge, um, I think, is doing something for the first time. Mm-hmm. Usually what happens in a university is you create a variation on something that more or less exists. Or you take two domains and you merge them. Let's say, you know, um, cell biology and, and, and mm-hmm. computation. Um, uh, or you, or you take an existing degree and you and you take a, a component of it and build that into its own degree. We were starting from scratch, building something where there were no models elsewhere in the world. All the models for this were were um, optional sub parts of other degrees. Mm-hmm. We had to do something from scratch, and that was a significant intellectual challenge. Right, we had to persuade. Uh, our colleagues in the LSE, that they should support something that was experimental. Um, And to my astonishment, we got nothing but support from the rest of the institution and nothing but support from our founders. Everyone is resource constrained, but we are in the very fortunate position to have been backed to run an experiment which looks as though it's proving
1: to be successful. How many people work here? What's the Marshall? What, how many people about, are making? We have about
0: sense? twenty people at the Marshall Institute. Um, about a third of whom are researchers okay. working on a, two big research um, directions. The first um, yeah, goes under the name of altruistic capital, mm-hmm. and that is a, an experimental research program designed to understand whether there is a thing. By analogy with financial capital or cultural capital right. or social capital called altruistic capital that humans possess and that can be modified up, down, or left unchanged by certain kinds of interventions. So we have a we make a set of assumptions that when we encourage people to volunteer or when we encourage people to donate, this is a straightforward and uncomplicated good thing. Right and that it leaves the net amount of altruism raised. But we don't know this. We don't know what effects those interventions have on our aggregate altruism. So um, uh, our colleague Nava Ashraf thought it would be interesting to create a a London-wide laboratory um, examining experimentally um, what causes altruism to rise or deplete or to remain unchanged. Mm-hmm. That's one major research um, direction for the institute. That's isn't? a whole podcast on its own. Indeed, it is. <laughs> Indeed, it is. And I strongly commend a podcast on alt- altruistic capital. Um, mm-hmm. um, and you should talk to Navar about that. The other is on um, hybrid, hybrid forms um, uh, that com- that that um, mediate as between state and market solutions for public challenges. Um, How we might appeal to the invisible heart Mm -hmm. as well as to the invisible hand, to use one of Ronnie Cohen's phrases. Uh, And that work is led by Julian Legrand and it looks at particular forms of organization, social enterprise, mutual co-op, to see whether some of those emerging hybrids hold the answers to some of the big questions about how we optimize for efficient resource allocation, effective competition, as well as sustainable development.
1: I don't imagine you have PhD students just yet, or you do? Uh,
0: We do, we do, do. both Navar and Julian supervise PhD students. We have a small grants program, so we give out a very small amount of grant funding. To um, uh, other research units around the uh, around the school, um, and we have a, a research assistants in this building who are working on various models and various experiments.
1: Mm-hmm. One of the things you mentioned you you do, uh, and you I think you do very well, is in terms of convening stakeholders, yeah. diverse stakeholders, highly consequential stakeholders. What does that look like? Who is it that? you might seek to bring into the Marshall Institute for some of these gatherings and how do you hope to reveal their thoughts about um, their thoughts about philanthropy, their thoughts about what works and what doesn't and and hopefully how can these thoughts then make their way into policy and and realities.
0: So you may be familiar with the with the rather startling fact that something less than two percent of global philanthropic capital is allocated to climate issues. Um, And this is clearly not something that is sustainable for a stack of reasons. So most trustees of most major foundations most individual philanthropists are conscious that there is a misallocation um, uh, against climate. But it's a non-trivial question. How do you reorient your philanthropy? So we are privileged to host precisely those kinds of conversations okay with the holders of those capital that of that capital with the trustees who supervise the disbursement of that capital with the executives who who disperse the capital with the regulators um, who think about incentives for disbursement and so on so that's uh, uh, an example of the kind of convening we do or it might be about the regulation of charities or it yes. might be about how to um, shift the stubbornly consistent um, uh, percentage of of um, philanthropic giving. Okay. It's very hard to move philanthropy. Uh, it's very hard to, to, for example, for a nation to double its giving rate. Okay. We don't quite know why that is.
1: How do we encourage that? How do we encourage the UK population, let's say, because that's where we're right now, to be more philanthropically engaged?
0: Um we don't know is the short answer. The long answer is by focusing on the question, so there are some things that are clearly true. you know the poor give a greater percentage uh, or, uh, uh, of their uh, assets than mm-hmm. the rich it's not clear how we how we nudge um, uh, giving upwards. Um, the conventional The conventional route to doing this is to create um, incentives using the tax code, for example. Or to create um, campaigns Mm -hmm. um, around retail giving. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not clear that tax has the simple effect of increasing giving. Most of the evidence suggests that it doesn't, which in itself is quite uh, peculiar. My guess is that giving... Um, relates to all kinds of things, not least the reputation of the charitable sector. So the charities have taken a significant hit over the last few years, and uh, are often described in disparaging terms in terms mm-hmm. of their governance, um, uh, the Kids Company scandal, the the safeguarding issues, um, and uh, I think that those things are uh, exaggerated uh, and problematic. I think philanthropy generally uh, is going through uh, something of a reputational crisis. Mm-hmm. I don't think we trust our philanthropists. I think that um, at some deep level in this country and in the U.S., there is skepticism about Um, uh, extreme wealth and it it, it as a corollary of uh, inequality and that um, uh, however impactful effective well intentioned and efficient big philanthropy is um, there is a uh, gathering um, distrust of elites Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and Philanthropists are nothing, big philanthropists are nothing if not elite. And I think this is a problem, a problem of legitimacy and one that we need to have a serious conversation about.
1: Can philanthropists or even aspiring philanthropists be part of your family to better inform their decisions? What would you say to somebody listening to this who is, um, not to say they won the lottery, but they have some resources and they want to do their philanthropy a bit better?
0: At some level, we're all philanthropists. Humans don't need to be taught how to look after other humans. Almost all the major traditions of the world and all all the major cultures of the world um, have wired into them some provision for others Mm -hmm. and for fellow feeling and for hospitality and for generosity and for altruism. So I don't think that, we, that this is a problem of um, uh, fundamental human nature. Right. I think this is a problem of resource allocation, of power imbalance, of uh, inequality um, and I think we need to have an honest conversation um, uh, about how resources are distributed in the first place. The problem with being rich Okay. and by rich I don't simply mean billionaire rich, I mean being part of the rich world, um, is that? Is that um, it's hard to see how we fit into the system, and it's hard to see our own privilege. And if you're very rich, it's hard to be told the truth. And I think that... Uh, sophisticated developed economies need an honest conversation about their responsibilities to the rest of humanity about the way those resources are distributed in the first place um, and Where
1: do those conversations happen? Do they happen in Davos? I Where don't do they happen?
0: No, I mean you know famously they started to happen last year um, but caused some degree of embarrassment um, I think they happen here mm-hmm. Um, I think they happen in universities. They happen amongst the biggest of the donors and foundations, um, who I think are conscious that there is a, that there is a challenge to their own legitimacy. Yes. And I think they happen amongst ordinary people who see, who see the effects of um, inequality all around. Them.
1: Is there much collaboration between the different centers? Uh, focused on philanthropy and social entrepreneurship?
0: Universities are are good at collaboration. Mm -hmm. I mean, unlike corporations, we we depend on each other. um, And universities really sign up to this notion that there are communities of scholars working on collective problems.
1: What does success look like to you in the next ten years and for the Marshall Institute? Where is it that if we're sitting at this table right here in this room, although I think probably you'll be across the yeah. Lincolnson. Uh, what would success look like?
0: We've thought a lot about what success would look like uh, for us over the next 10 years. And one of the things that's informed that thinking is a, is a, a, a slight frustration with the hubris that's associated with our movement. Mm-hmm. I hear all the time that we're going to solve climate change, end poverty, create sustainable food security. But we know, as we say these things, we know that these problems are continuous that they're the, and that we don't end them. We address them more or less successfully. Okay? We don't end them. So I'm very concerned when I hear um, our movement make commitments that we know we can't meet mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so my, my sense of what success would mean for us will be um, uh, modest and bounded modest in the sense that what I care about most of all um, is accelerating the impact of our own students Right, having students whose lives we have changed in however modest a way, to reorient their intentions, their careers, their practices, and their beliefs. Slightly less modestly, I measure success not in terms of the, simply of the numbers of students whose lives we touch, but of the effect we have on this system within universities. Mm-hmm. Okay, the LSE is an elite university, it's uh, a very international university, it will be copied if what we are doing is good it will be copied by other analogous universities around the world and if in 10 years time ours is not the only executive masters program of this kind if in 10 years time lots of other universities are producing full-time and part-time and elective and optional courses of this kind i will be very happy that Mm -hmm. i will consider that to be success Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If we have created, um, even in modest terms, the reorientation of a public debate around the nature of philanthropy and its legitimacy, I will be very happy.
1: Mm-hmm. When you say our movement, you refer to the movement, our yeah. movement, the what, future. What is our movement, and how might somebody join our movement?
0: That's a good question. I, I think of our movement as the movement of those people who think that the mechanisms of finance, markets, money, business, reporting can be tilted towards a more just equilibrium. I don't think that we should get locked into this notion that um, uh, business is bad. Mm -hmm. Business work markets, trade, commerce give meaning to the lives of the vast majority of people on the planet um, and um, have given meaning and some degree of security to the vast majority of people on the planet. But, and, um, the mechanisms that we've built have, have created... A significant degree of cost borne by poor people and the planet. It can't be beyond our collective will and our collective competence to reorient those institutions and those practices in such a way that we can create a more just equilibrium.
1: Mm. That's,
0: That's what it. I think of as our movement.
1: Yeah. So if somebody, um, if our listeners forgot everything we've been talking about for the last half hour, but they kept one key salient point in mind. What's the key takeaway that you'd love for, uh, for the listeners to, uh, to walk away with after they finish listening to the show?
0: Okay. I think we used to think of entrepreneurship um, and philanthropy as things that were discretionary or elective. Mm-hmm. You could choose to do them if you were that way inclined. If you were rich, if you felt generous, you might want to support other people if you had a personality that led you to do things differently or on your own account, you were an entrepreneur. Yeah, I think my argument is that the state of the world is such that neither of those things is elective anymore. Neither mm. of those things is discretionary anymore. Unless we, all of us, all the time, make common cause with the rest of humanity, yes. we're in big trouble. Mm. Unless all of us, all the time... Think about our roles in the world as different, as necessarily challenging and innovative. Unless we are all of us prepared to create new rules, we're finished.
1: We got a problem. Perfect. And on that note, Stefan, thank you so very much for joining me on the Do One Better podcast today. It's been an great absolute pleasure. pleasure. Really great. And I wish you continued success with the Marshall Institute and to our listeners. Please do subscribe and share. And uh, thank you very much for listening. It's always a pleasure. And Stefan, thank you to you and to your team. It's a great pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at Liji.org. That's l-i-d-j-i.org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic to think more about sustainability and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better.